It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 22, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest for this episode is Kat Becker, who farms with her husband, Tony Schultz, at Stony Acres Farm. Stony Acres is located on the edge of the Northwoods in Wisconsin at the border between zones three and four. Managing 150 acres, Kat and Tony raised 10 acres of vegetables and fruit, rotationally grazed cows, pork, maple syrup, small grains, and mushrooms. And they host on-farm pizza night every Friday night during the warm season, featuring their own farm ingredients, including the wheat baked in one of their two wood-fired ovens. We talk about the challenges of managing this diversity, how pizza has helped them integrate into their community, family dynamics, and Kat's trans transition to focusing on the farm full time. I had a lot of fun recording this episode. I felt like I learned a lot and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. Vermontcompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Kat. I know um, this podcast will, won't come out until July, but it is still June here in the upper Midwest. So I really appreciate that you're making the time to make this happen here in the last week of June. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You get me to simultaneously weed eggplants as I talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) This is a, this is a real farmer to farmer podcast. It is. Okay. That's great. So can you, um, let's start off by getting the lay of the land there at Stony Acres Farm. If you can tell us about about your operation, the kinds of things that you're growing, which I think is about everything under the sun and the, where you're located geographically, number of acres you're farming, all of those kinds of. Okay. Um, so we are located in the northwestmost township of Marathon County. Um, and so we're in north central Wisconsin. We're north of the center of the state. Um, and we're not quite in the north woods, or we wouldn't say we were in the north woods. And we like to say we're right in the area between where it's majority farmland, minority woods, and majority woods and minority farmland. So we're not quite split 50-50, but we're right where Wisconsin transitions. Um, And we're right on the border of zone four and zone three, which is just where most vegetable farmers want to be, I guess. Um, So that's why there's not a lot of us up here. Um, We have about 150 acres that we manage. It's the farm where my husband grew up. And so we've tried to keep the land as a block and kind of manage that as a block, even though most of our economic activity comes from about 15 acres. We have about 10 acres of mixed vegetables and fruit. And um, then we have another third of our land for vegetables, which is in a full year fallow. Now every year, uh, we've got 80 acres of land for rotational grazing for beef cows. We have about 45 animals counting young stock. And that's an area where we're trying to put a little bit more effort in the next few years. Uh, It's just allowed us to manage the land in a way that we feel like is pretty good, but beef is not a mainstay of our uh, I guess our living. We don't make that much money off of beef. And then we have some maple syrup woods, just some wild areas and about 30 acres in a rotation of for small grains. So that's kind of the lay of the land. And we have about a 10% elevation change or 10 foot elevation change across the farm. So we're fairly flat. We're not in a rolling area and we have pretty heavy soil. So it's officially a silt loam, but I think everyone from Southern Wisconsin would call it clay. (laughs) 
And, and tell us what kinds of products you're marketing and, and where you're selling those. Okay. So we grow, I guess, every vegetable or fruit that we can grow. Uh, maybe I'm lying about that. I don't think we have Arctic kiwi or there's a couple of things we don't grow or we haven't grown yet. Um, but we try almost everything and try to make it succeed. So sweet potatoes would be kind of a fringe thing or okra, but mostly staple vegetables, so broccoli and kale and carrots and beets and, um, and Almost all of our vegetables, or most of our vegetables, are marketed through a CSA. We have 215 members in our CSA, although about two-thirds of our members get a small share or a half share, however you want to quantify that. So it's not quite an equivalent of... Um, 215 full shares. I think it's more like 160. Um, and most of our shares go to WASA. I'd say, let's see, I know the exact amount. It's about two-thirds of our shares go to WASA, and then the other third are distributed between Merrill, um, which is north of WASA, Medford, which is northwest of where we live, about 15 miles, and then some small towns and on-farm pickups around. Um, also, we deal with a couple of restaurants in WASA. Increasingly, we work with a place called the Red Eye, which is a bar. They have a great chef that's really focused on getting local stuff in a meaningful Away, and so we have pretty large orders that go out to him every week. And then we go to two farmers markets. We go to the Wassa Summer Farmers Market, which is in Wassa, and then we helped establish a winter farmers market. Uh, let's see, two and a half years ago. So we've had two full seasons at the winter market, and so that's been kind of an increasing part of our business. Other things we market, um, we, let's see, have a one kind of wholesale account for maple syrup to a guy that makes yogurt and cream wine milk in our county, about 10 miles away from here. And then um, we also do an on-farm pizza night, which I, that we'll talk more about, but we, people come to us for that. I love the, I love the pizza thing. And I definitely want to, I want to come back to that because that's really intriguing to me. Um, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to start by just asking you, I mean, Wausau, Wisconsin, I mean, I, when, when you say this and then you mentioned the, the guy doing local cream line milk, I mean, it is Wisconsin, so you would expect dairy producers, but I'm, I don't think of Wausau as being, it's not where I would choose to market vegetables right off the bat. I don't think of it as being a high income, particularly hip location. <laughs> and it's, it's not... I think you said, as we were talking before the show, it's about 80,000 people. It's not a particularly large place to be marketing certified organic and local produce. Yeah. I mean, I guess we think of Wassa as a big, big underserved metropolitan area. So um, while it is not Madison, there is not a whole lot of competition here. Um, so there's not a lot of other people that are doing what we're doing. We're the only certified organic producer at the Wassa Farmers Market. Um, and there's a couple of people kind of coming online and we have some neighbors that we helped get established that just started a CSA. Um, and there's, I think, three or four CSAs total that serve Wassa, but most of them are really small, um, much smaller than us and, you know, 10 or 20 shares. And so Wassa, as well as Marshfield, which is even smaller than Wassa, I think, are fairly underserved. And I also think that the good food movement, the local food movement, the organic food movement have all reached here. You know, they're, they're not just, I guess, an urban high income concern. You know, we, I would say that a lot of people that we feed are young families um, or people that cook. And that's actually a pretty, 
growing big, nice demographic here. And uh, and I mentioned it being underserved. I think that there's a lot of capacity for local food. And we moved from Madison. When we were in Madison, the local food movement was kind of booming, not maybe as much as it is now, but it was really um, taken off. And it really hadn't met uh, or gotten to Wasser, North Central Wisconsin. So we have worked a lot to help establish that, but also it's given us a lot of room to reach out to people that maybe wouldn't fit in the traditional demographic analysis of who buys organic food. So, I mean, you're kind of talking about being in the right place at the right time as the the local food movement reaches Wasaw, but also doing work there to make sure that it does reach Wasaw and, and meets its potential there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Wasa now for like two years has had a slow food organization. Um, we've been working at the county level on trying to do farm to schools work since we moved here, which has been always really frustrating. And this year it's been pretty easy and exciting. And there's lots of rural school districts that we're working with. So I think part of it is like putting in the work and building the relationships for certain infrastructure. And then I also think that if you look at the demographics, you know, UW Extension, uh, USDA, SSA have all kind of looked at, you know, where do we have growing markets? Where do we have young farmers entering? And they see that it's been in the organic movement. So while we used to kind of be fringe, I think that what we're doing is being kind of supported by a lot of the public sector workers that work around agriculture now and kind of recognized as legitimate um, and that's not just us. I think that's also, you know, a lot of national work and the growing organic movement as a whole. But yeah, in terms of being in the right place at the right time, Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma came out the year before we moved back. So we like to say that Michael Pollan sold all of our first year's CSA shares. Um, and, and I think we were here at the right time, but I think it's a lot easier for farmers that are starting organic production now than it was when we got here. I've oftentimes said about the, we started marketing from Rock Spring Farm in the, into the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis, which was three hours away from our farm um, in 2001. And I, as I've looked at how that market's grown and developed over the last 15 years, I've oftentimes thought, I'm glad I'm not trying to get started farming in that marketplace now, because we really did hit that at the right time. There was a lot of awareness, and but there was also huge market capacity at that point that has to a large degree been filled in that area. And it's, it's kind of interesting that in some of these, these smaller markets, like you're talking about with Wausau, that, that you're, you're at the crest of the wave rather than on the backside of it now. Yeah, definitely. And we've, I mean, I, you know, we're part of the fair share CSA coalition in Madison, which is mainly around, you know, Southern Wisconsin. And I think a lot of the issues that those farmers are talking about, that CSA farmers and the Twin Cities are talking about in terms of competition and CSA members trying out different CSAs every year are things that we don't deal with at all, basically. You know, we have about 85 plus percent of our CSA members come back every year. We just had our pancake breakfast this past Sunday and we had little kids who wanted to go in the hay mow in our barn, which we generally try to dissuade people from doing, but they've been there, been in there since we started. So they're kids that have, you know, been on our farm for nine years, almost 10 years and who are used to building hay castles and, um, and so we feel like we've really had a nice community here. And so we don't deal with a lot of those other issues around competition. And certainly getting started is a lot easier here. It's really, it, it just, yeah, it, it's, it makes me pause and just think about, I mean, an 85% retention rate 
I mean, that has to be a combination of you guys doing something right as well as being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, I think that we do a good job. I think we excel in building community um, and put a lot of effort into that part of things. But we also have been really lucky in terms of where some of our drop sites are. We just have neighborhoods where CSA pickup night is like a cocktail hour and kids time. So the community behind us has been really outstanding, which is, I think we help cultivate, but it's also, you know, some great people who have, I guess, formed that community around the CSA too. That might be the practical take-home hint of the of the episode right there is cocktail hour and CSA pickup. I think that that's a nice that's got to be a nice combination there. It is. Uh, well, we have there are a lot of home brewers in this specific tight knit neighborhood in Wausau, so they uh, they get together <laughs> and it's a, I feel like it's perfect and it helps recruit new CSA members because they're so excited about the the beer that they get at the same time as picking up their CSA boxes. <laughs> So what kinds of things have you done on your in your CSA to build that community, to, to foster that? Or is that just something that you lucked into? I think it's a combination of both. Our first drop site host ever, the Busig family, they're like our favorite CSA members of all time. Um, they volunteered. So they kind of met us at the farmer's market. Our first season, we didn't do a CSA. We just did market sales. And then they... We're like, do you want to drop off your boxes at our house? <laughs> so they offered and we said yes. And so we kind of walked into a ready-made community that we didn't realize we were walking into. So that was very fortunate. I also think that we we do a lot of farm events and we also make our farm really open to other farmers. So often when I'm talking to people about if they want to do a CSA or how CSA works, I'm kind of adamant about CSA not being like a dumping ground for extra produce or just a way to get capital in the spring. But I think, you know, if you want a CSA that functions and also supports you as a farmer, you have to be building community and providing an opportunity for people to participate in meaningful ways. And so I think that we're really open to people. I think we don't do this anymore, but about five years ago, Tony made it a goal to invite every CSA family over to dinner. That was a little intense for me um, and totally impossible. But but I do think we're pretty open to that. And we, we love when new people come to town and want to be in the CSA. We often invite them over for a meal and kind of get to know people in an in-depth way. And then I think we have a good crew of returning worker shares. That is a, another big community that we have, but we just, I guess we have done well at kind of having a mixture between big parties. So we have a big barn dance and then also just having CSA members support each other. So we have, you know, some CSA members that teach cooking classes for other CSA members and do some of the work that, Maybe we would have to do, but they do it better because they're better at teaching people how to cook. I basically always just tell people to stir fry something, which isn't real advice. So, um, <laughs> so I can come up with recipes, but I think having people that have other skills um, and let other people who aren't maybe cooks get more into the CSA and feel better supported. So, no, it's a combination of us and also just wonderful people that have been in our CSA. Now, you talked about that idea of bringing people onto the farm. Let's use that as a way to pivot into the farm-to-table pizzas that you guys serve on Friday nights on your farm. Yes, we're doing that now. <laughs> is, is, that every, is that every Friday night? It's every Friday night, the 1st of May through, well, potentially the 1st of November, whenever that last weekend of either the first week in November, the last week of October is. I think this year it's October 30th. So it's not the whole year. Um, 
and we don't go as long as some other people that do on, on farm farm to table stuff, because honestly, we have a big haul of root vegetables to deal with and we need a break. <laughs> so that's what we, we hibernate in the winter so that we shut down for a little while. So, so how does that, how does that work? Tell, just again, give us the lay of the land when it comes to, to a farm to table pizza. Cause I try to imagine that on, on the farm that I owned and I'm like, Hmm, no. Yeah. So it depends on, I mean, this is also depends on what kind of farmer you are, right? If you don't want strangers wandering your fields, it's probably not the best thing to do. Um, but we, um, we totally stole the idea. I want to be upfront with that with for everyone. It's not, we're not on the cutting age of pizza farms. Our friends, um, Ted Fisher and Robbie Bannon at A through Z produce, um, and bakery. And we became friends with them through the farmer's union and we saw their pizza night and we actually originally didn't think we were going to do pizza night, but we loved their pizza oven as like a CSA event thing. And we were also trying to create a place for the guy who was dating my sister-in-law to like insert his talent into the farm. Um, <laughs> they ended up not, uh, not staying together, which is unfortunate, but he's still a nice guy. And my sister-in-law is now getting married to someone who we really love. So that's fine. Um, and she's in Milwaukee or in Madison now. She was in Milwaukee, not in Athens, but uh, that's why we built the oven originally. And then we also were in the midst of setting up a pack shed. Um, we really were using an inappropriate pack space, like an old dairy, the front end of our old dairy barn, which had hay stored above it for a really long time. And so we needed a real space to do, um, yeah, to pack things and keep things clean. We had to spend so much effort cleaning in that barn that we needed a better space. So we decided to renovate this old machine shedish uh, wooden barn structure or the greenery. It has many names. And so when we did that, we thought, well, we're putting in this pack shed. We're going to put it in the bathroom because our house only has one bathroom. And we are going to you know, hook up water. So maybe we should just put in a commercial kitchen in case we want to do a farm to table thing, since we're already kind of doing CSA events and um, doing some fun stuff with the pizza oven. So we put the, uh, we put the kitchen in. Um, and so the oven was built in 2010 and then 2012 was the first year we opened up for pizza. And that was a pretty, you know, we used to think that 40 pizzas in a night that first year was a big turnout. And we really only marketed to CSA members and didn't do almost any advertising. Um, and then this past Friday, we had our biggest night ever, which has been the story of the summer. So we had, we served 200 pizzas. Um, and I can't even imagine how many people were at our farm. I bet there were six or 700 people over the course of the night. Um, so there was a lot of people here, but they pretty much take care of themselves. Are you guys making 200 pizzas on Friday night? We are making 200 pizzas on Friday night. Yes. And doing um, this all in a wood fired pizza oven. All in a two now wood fired pizza ovens. We last year, made the executive decision um, after kind of not being sure about how we should manage growth. Um, we made an investment in a second oven. Um, very fortunate to have a father-in-law who's a very good mason and helps us with a lot of things. So he built another oven um, while we were super busy in the middle of the summer. Uh, so we have two ovens now, and we certainly have been kind of bringing in a couple more people to help us on Friday nights. We used to do it just with four of us. Now it's more like six, um, plus some people playing with our in-laws, playing with our kids and other kind of family support. But yeah, we serve 200 pizzas on Friday night. So it's a 
it's kind of like a circus, um, <laughs> but it's, it's also really fun. And we also get to feed people who live close to us even more than we do through the CSA. So that's another thing that we really like. So this is something like that your neighbors are coming out to. Yeah. A lot of neighbors. I mean, one of my like pride and joy things about pizza night is that we have a lot of dairy farmers that come either right before they milk or right after they milk. And I feel like they get special treatment on the farm because I know that they are like working around this ridiculous schedule. Um, but yeah, our neighbors are here. There's not a lot of food options in rural Wisconsin. Um, Medford, which has 5,000 people, has almost no restaurants. I mean, they have fast food, but then a couple kind of cafe, diner type places. But they have no real places to go out to dinner for the most part. Um, so Medford, there's a lot of people from Medford that come or between Medford and Athens. We have a lot of neighbors that come and get pizza to go. Um, yeah, all the teachers, the last day of school from the Athens School District, which is five miles from us, came out. Uh, so we have a lot of local people coming out. It's probably about half of the folks that come out for pizza night are local, really local, like within 15 miles. And then the other half are probably mostly Wausau with a few people that are traveling through or visiting or you know, we have some people that drive an hour from Stevens Point every Friday for pizza. But wow. um, those are the diehards. The pizzas. Now, I assume that this isn't just a matter of, of buying in a bunch of ingredients and cooking pizza on your farm. It is not. And in fact, we're a little bit snobby about the fact that we don't buy in a lot of stuff. We have to buy cheese. Neither of us have a cheese maker's license. That's way beyond what we would even consider doing at this point, although we're helping groom our 19-year-old neighbor who's in college right now who wants to do a micro-dairy into doing cheese because then we could really have it all like from right here. <laughs> um, but we grow the wheat, um, we've, and we've had to buy wheat a couple of times. Last year it was incredibly wet. We had a really ugly wheat crop, um, so we had to buy in a little bit of organic wheat this spring to supplement what we actually got off. But we're growing our own wheat. That's what we make the dough out of. Um, we get sunflowers from sunflower oil from our neighbor, um, and we do use some olive oil. And we buy cheese from a local creamery, Bletto's Cheese, um, which is about 10 miles from us. And then we get specialty cheeses from Wisconsin. But then we make all the sauce. You know, tomato season in the Zone 3, Zone 4 border is quite, quite small window. So we make all the sauce basically between the very tail end of July and the second week in September. And then we do a combination of canning and freezing, um, and then obviously making fresh sauce during that time. And then the ingredients are based on what we have in season. So this past week we did the scapegoat, which is one of our favorite pizzas, um, which is goat cheese from <laughs> their farms and garlic scapes. And then we put um, ham from our pigs on it. Um, yeah, we raise all the pigs that go on our pizzas. So we have sausage and bacon made, um, and then some hams cured. But most of it is our ground pork that we flavor ourselves with maple syrup. Um, and then, yeah, whatever we have in season. So, you know, we have, we have one called Brass Brassicosaurus, which is all brassica plants and the scapegoat. We are doing mushrooms on our farm um, on a small scale. So we have sh some shiitake and oyster mushrooms that make an appearance. And that's kind of the way that we've set it up is trying to be true to what's in season on the farm. And sometimes it's a little bit weird for people who are used to going someplace and ordering olives and green peppers. And they've had to get used to that. But I feel like our neighbors, after the first year of being kind of surprised about that, are now totally in tune with it. So, um, yeah, we put whatever is in season on pizza. Well, and I suppose, I mean, it is, I know that 
my neighbors in Northeast Iowa didn't eat vegetables. I mean, they, they maybe had like rutabagas and that was it. And the rest of it was kind of foreign to them. But I think that if you had put it on a pizza, they might've, they might've actually given it a whirl. It's true. In fact, like it was last year, we had people that kind of come, they come really regularly for pizza after little league practice and they live in Athens and they must've gotten a pizza which had arugula on it. And then they were like, Oh, arugula is not scary. So they bought it because we always have a little farmer's market stand set up because we do a farmer's market the next day. So we've already harvested everything. So we kind of set up a little farmer's market stand. And I got stopped in the Senex gas station and told how good someone's arugula and chicken salad was. And I was like, I've been waiting for 10 years for this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But for me, that's, you know, I really, really like feeding our community. It makes me feel like very proud of our farm. It's also helped people like, feel much more comfortable with our farm. We're not just the, the strange You've got farm some weird organic vegetable growers out there. Yeah, yeah, not none. No, no organic vegetable growers. <laughs> yeah. So does it, is it just one pizza every Friday? I mean, is no, it just one con? We have, um, every week we have sausage and we have pepperoni made by a local meat processor. So sausage and pepperoni, um, Every week, as well as cheese, but I don't know why you would order a cheese pizza. I mean, unless you're in New York, but I don't care. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And then uh, you, we have a five veggie every week. So that's depending on what's in season. Um, we put five different vegetables, although I sometimes count mushrooms as vegetables, which is not true, but they go on those pizzas sometimes. And then we have two other specials. So this week we had the scapegoat and then we had a summer solstice which is mushrooms, sausage, what was on that? Broccoli or kale. People love kale on pizza. Um, and something else. I clearly have no memory of what happened last Friday. It's already too far away. But yep. two specials that rotate based on the season. And people can kind of combine things. So they can always freeze hot peppers. They can always put hot peppers on things. They can have tomatoes taken off. We make vegan pizzas because people sometimes request them. <laughs> You got pizza night. I mean, this obviously doesn't just happen on its own. Um, In addition to, so, so far I'm counting, we've got vegetables, we've got beef, we've got pork, we've got grains, we've got maple syrup. Yes. That's a lot. That's a lot of diversity to stay on top of. I mean, it's almost like if you took the vegetables out, you might, you'd have a normal farm from 50 (laughs) years ago. Right. But then you add in a CSA program on 10 acres and that's usually enough to keep a young couple with children busy. And now you're just, you've added in pizza and, and this whole other suite of enterprises. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, we are, I, I have to just confess this and I always tell people this, we're not that good at growing vegetables. Like we're, we're okay at growing vegetables. Um, I think if we had nothing else going on, but 10 acres of vegetables, we'd be better vegetable growers um, because we'd never worry about the cows getting out or moving a calf or, you know, I guess small grains I think of is not really very difficult at all. Basically you have to plant them and harvest them. Um, it's not, a, and we get things custom harvested. So that's not a big problem for us. You know, we kind of get a gravity box out and they harvest into it for us. Um, we look at their combine. It's not that big of a deal, but, right. um, but yeah, we do have a lot going on. I mean, this weekend, for instance, June is insane. So this weekend we did 
pizza night, and then it was our biggest pizza night ever. Tony went to the farmer's market in the morning, so I feel like he went to bed at 11 and woke up at 4.30 or 5. And then I got up, went to the dump, took the kids to a pool because I wanted to do something fun with them. I'm trying to be a fun parent. Um, and then came back, and we had to make hay. And we still use small square bales because that's practical and not labor-intensive at all. So we made hay all afternoon and it was my father-in-law and then we uh and then we you know ate a big family dinner got everything ready had a pancake breakfast on sunday and you know had to i had to go out and harvest broccoli and cauliflower at the end of the pancake breakfast because they don't wait around so i think there's some times that it's actually totally nuts um but I do think we're kind of getting it down. I mean, we have constant debates about whether or not we should sell the beef cows because they're totally not that profitable and really destructive if they ever get out of their fence and get anywhere near my vegetables. It makes me just worried um, all the time. They also are pretty, you know, we have the best compost we've ever had this year, you know, incredible fertility. We feel really good about philosophically about kind of trying to close the loop as much as possible. Um, so we, we try to balance it, but some things get ignored. Like I think our parsnips are going to be like a rescue mission. We haven't had a rescue mission in a while, but I think it might be a rescue mission for the parsnips sometime soon. Um, but certainly the vegetables and weeds get beyond us. Um, trying to think about what else with the diversity. I mean, I think we're committed to the diversity. The other thing about pizza night is that um, we're kind of committed to a certain scale. So we have, this year we have two full-time employees. Um, we have had three or two and a half in the past. Um, and we have, uh, you know, about 10 people that do worker shares for the CSA. But we're committed to providing most of the labor on the farm. And because of that, it kind of limits our vegetable expansion. You know, we could market a lot more than the number of vegetables we currently grow. Um, but we kind of have scaled it to a certain size. And Pizza Night has allowed us to, without kind of with kind of reorganizing labor, it's allowed us to make much more money um in in given a diversified system. So I feel like that's really been nice. Um so the other thing I think I should be really clear about is that we have a ton of familial support. So I always wonder how people, you know, we have friends that start a farm outside of Madison and their parents aren't nearby and they have two small children. And just even thinking about that makes me feel like nervous. Um, And so I think that we've made a lot of decisions uh, based on the fact that we have family support. Like we would not have beef cows if my father-in-law wasn't still in love with the idea of making hay since he used to be a dairy farmer. So we certainly have a lot of support which keeps that diversity going. And you know, my father-in-law gets excited in the spring. So he almost always has been planting the small grains, even though we could do it. So we have, we have a lot of support and childcare and things like that. The childcare aspect I imagine is, is huge. For me, it is huge. I now have a seven-year-old standing over me as I talk about childcare. Um, but I, yeah, we I kind of resisted childcare for a really long time and it's become more and more important for me personally um to not go nuts because our kids clearly need someone to watch them at least most of the time. We have some our 5-year-old and 7-year-old can run around and play around us, but it, eventually they need genuine attention. Um not right. just, not just like help us pick peppers, that's not always so fun for them. <laughs> Um, and then, and wait, so, it's, it's not, 
Yeah, I know. And we are, we, I struggle with sending my kids to school. Um, but there's no way I personally can homeschool my children without killing my spouse and myself. Um, and so I feel like we've, that's also a form of childcare, even though people probably don't feel comfortable saying that. Um, so that's helped us a lot having at least one kid in school. We'll have two this year, um, for the spring and fall. And then we have a great neighbor who is a mother of five. She's one 15 year old still at home and the rest of her kids are grown up and she's awesome. Um, and has known our family since we were, you know, since we first moved here. And so she's been really wonderful because I trust her with my kids and she comes out and gets me if they really need me. And, um, yeah, we have childcare on Mondays and Wednesdays from eight to five. And then on Tuesdays we do kind of a juggling act, a vision of labor. And on Thursdays when we do deliveries, we kind of do something similar and try to have some family time. And then on Fridays, my kids are around helping. They have their own kind of harvest projects other than the little ones. And then we, my mother-in-law watches them on pizza night. So we have certainly have a lot of support for kids rearing. Is it just the two children? We have three. So we have a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, and then we have a 19-month-old. And she is obviously more effort. And that's our final child, if you're wondering. We're having three children. No more children. (laughs) Too many. I, I know a lot of people for whom the third one pushed them over the edge. Yeah, we call it her the tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, don't, don't tell my, my 13 year old daughter, but she, you know, it was, I mean, that was, it was, it was that point at which things were hard and then things were crazy when she came along. Yeah. Well, and also bigger kids are easier. So we've had like a little baby or a toddler, you know, for basically every year, but the first two years of our farm. So I really enjoy the idea that I will eventually have all children over four who can like actually wander around in a semi-safe way <laughs> and be <Right>. kind of involved <laughs> in the farm. I mean, our seven-year-old can like actually help. And my almost five-year-old has been, he helped me. He stayed out and harvested a ton of broccoli and, bro- and cauliflower with me yesterday. So I feel like they, they're more fun and easy to deal with in the context of vegetable growing when they get bigger. And also no diapers. No diapers. Yeah. I'm hoping to be out of diapers by the, not me personally, but my baby. By the fall. <laughs> it's a real heavy incentive towards, uh, towards potty training. It is. And a farm is a good place to potty train really. So no, no one's looking if you're just, if your baby's just wearing it, only a shirt. So it's fine. They can wander around in the front yard with no pants on. Say just so, just so long as you manage the food safety concerns and the vegetables. Yeah, you know. we don't we don't have her in the pack shed. Well, she isn't doing this yet, but it's my dream that this will happen later. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no pooping on the vegetables. That's a goal. Right. <laughs> so I want to just. I mean, kids are awesome, but I really want to. I want to get back to how you're. And oh, you mentioned mushrooms too. Yeah. I mean, so. You've talked about the juggling act with the children on a day-to-day basis. How are you and Tony managing your activities? How, I mean, how are you guys deciding when you've got so many different possibilities of what might get your attention? What's going to get your attention? Um, well, I think our employee who's standing next to me, Michelle, would get on the phone and tell you that Tony has more of a tendency to get distracted by side projects than I do. She's smiling at me. Um, but we, but so he 
it's harder to keep on task. Um, but we, we spend a lot of time together. I mean, there are people with different divisions of labor. We work and kind of pride ourselves on working side by side with our employees. Um, and that means usually one of us is doing a different distracted task. Like right now he's spreading compost and getting beds ready for the fall. Um, but we have a calendar, you know, we have, I have a pretty strict planting calendar. So that is something that we try to hold ourselves to if the weather allows. Um, and we, so we are kind of integrating that on a weekly basis with other things that need to happen. But the other thing about the diversity is that things kind of line up for us in a seasonal way, you know, Small grains basically need attention early in the spring, usually before vegetables, almost any vegetable can go in the field. I mean, you could have maybe a early spring planting, but they go in really early. They're the earliest thing that we plant, basically. And then um, maple syrup is before the snow is melted or when the snow is melting. So that overlaps with greenhouse work. And so we have an ability to kind of split that up. And, and mushrooms similarly happen. Most of our mushroom inoculation we do right at the end of maple syrup season. So right before when we still have greenhouse work, but having gotten in the field. And so we try to front load certain types of work. Um, that said, you know, we butcher cows and pigs. Um, and t- I mean, we don't butcher them here, but we take them to the butcher at times that are super inconvenient for us because because they're in pasture, they're really mature, as you know, right now. So, you know, last week, which right. is one of our busiest weeks for taking them in. And then we just, you know, we I feel like, I don't know if it's not, it's not really like a magical equation, but we sit down and we make lists together every week. We kind of have our Sunday night triage. Um, and then... You know, there's obviously things on a daily basis that might grab our attention for like an emergency or we notice a pest or, um, and then we try to integrate those things in. And we've gotten a lot better. I mean, in the first three years, we had these insane lists <laughs> that I feel like we'd have a list and it would take us three weeks to get through it. I feel like now we have a pretty good understanding of what we can do in a day. Um, and we also have set work hours. Like we used to work <laughs> until nine o'clock at night and eat salad and, uh, popcorn for dinner when we didn't have kids. So now we have a much more set work schedule and one of us might work like later in the evening if we have something that has to get done, but one of us has to be with the kids and we kind of set that time aside and we're getting better at that. So I don't, I don't know how we do everything, but we make lists and we've gotten better at communicating about our own desires since as a couple on the farm, we clearly have different priorities about what we should be spending time on. Um, so that's certainly a negotiation process too. Do you guys, I mean, you, you talked about working side by side with your employees, but do you guys have a division of labor between you? Things that, I mean, I noticed you said Tony's out on the tractor and you're doing the public relations piece right now, but is, yeah. um, of course your public, public relations and weeding what? I'm weeding eggplant. Weeding the eggplants. Okay. Um, and, and obviously doing some, some elbow to elbow management with your employees at the same time is, um, do you guys have a normal division of labor between the two of you, or is that kind of whatever task is bubbling up at the moment? Um, we have some division of labor. So Tony definitely does more mechanical, oh, no, I shouldn't say mechanical work. <laughs> That's not what I mean. He's not very good at mechanical work. Tony does more machinery <laughs> driving than I do. Um, 
And part of that has come out of the fact that I have been like pregnant or nursing a baby for like the entire time we've been farming together. So I think a lot of the times that I would have been doing that, it would have been totally inappropriate to be doing it. Um, so that I think is part of it. And also this is where he grew up. And so I can drive a tractor. He's way more comfortable with a lot of machinery and he's much better at like backing up a manure spreader than I am. Um, Although that's one of our like goals that we've been focusing on this year. It's just like I'm cultivating more and focusing more on doing some of the machinery stuff so that he doesn't feel forced into it. Because quite honestly, I, I know there's some farms where you have kind of a machine head, gearhead person, and then you have the, another person that's a people person or likes the physical work. Um, but neither of us really like driving tractor very much. <laughs> so um, he doesn't want to be doing that all day, any day. And, um, and I'm happy to do more of that work. In terms of other divisions of labor, um, we try to separate ourselves, which doesn't mean that it's a clear division of labor, but we basically try not to work together in super stressful situations. So um, we now can pack CSA boxes successfully together, but we took about four years off of doing that because it just was a good way to have a marital fight over nothing. Um, and so now we pack boxes again together, but we don't harvest together on our big harvest day on Wednesday. So we don't spend any time together. Um, and something that we've realized is that if there's other people like workers who are making us anxious, we generally take it out on each other, not on people that are doing something maybe in a way that's not great. Um, right. And so we just have separated ourselves. And we have a wonderful employee, Michelle, who's going to be our hired hand next year, right? Um, we're trying to hire her year-round. Um, and she's really good at managing us. So finding somebody who can, like, handle us and understand our dynamics and work in between us. She basically does that both on Harvest Day and on Pizza Night. On Pizza Night, Tony rolls the pizzas, and I work the oven, so we're totally separate the entire night basically. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, I guess that's a division of labor that we have. But aside from that, you know, I make the spreadsheets, he looks at them, I order seed, but I don't like just go and do that without us talking about just bigger decisions. You know, things would stay the same over the time, over time we don't talk about that much, but yeah, I, I guess we do both are kind of interchangeable. He's faster at cutting salad mix and I'm faster at everything else he would tell you that's true. So <laughs> he cuts salad mix. I don't cut salad mix. It's we nice that you guys are in agreement on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a slightly faster leader. Now, but you said that you, you make the pizza dough and, and Tony bakes the pizza. So no, I, I mean, make the dough, got... he rolls the pizzas and then I bake them. <laughs> oh, so okay. I give him the okay. raw material. So if my dough is bad, I get a earful. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So I'm kind of curious, I mean, how, how that works. I mean, I know, I mean, I like making, I don't make it in a wood fired pizza oven, but you know, I've got a fancy stone that's in my, my yeah. regular oven and we have pizza night here at home. And, and I know that I like my dough a certain way. And I know that, yep. I mean, you get the same kind of thing on the farm, right? I mean, how big should the bunches of beets be and how many, yep. you know, if you've got one person doing harvest and another person doing packing and you're both doing farmer's markets, then you've kind of got... I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of times where disagreements about the outcomes, about what, what is it, how should things look or how stretchy should that pizza dough be? Or are we going to make it with, with, uh, you know, with a gallon of olive oil per 50 pounds of flour, or are we going to make it with two gallons of olive oil per 50 pounds of flour? I don't know if that's the right ratio or not. I was making that up, but, (laughs) but. You know, I mean, there's there's legitimate differences that can both come out in something that's that's quote unquote right. Yep. But 
how do you guys how do you guys resolve those kinds of differences, especially if you aren't working side by side together? And at the time that that the pizzas the pizza dough is being needed, or the beets are being put into bunches. Um, with bunch size, Tony always thinks bigger bunches are better. So if I'm trying to just get away from a tension, I just make people make bigger bunches no matter what. So that's, that's easy. I know that I know him. <laughs> um, although I guess we had a kale bunch fight last week because I was like, that's not going to fit in the box. <laughs> so maybe we just, we, we definitely bicker. Um, that's like part of our dynamic is bickering. That's real. Um, so you have to be slightly comfortable with bickering. I think we tell people when we hire them that we're going to bicker. So they have to be comfortable with that. But that doesn't mean we don't love each other. So that's kind of our thing. Um, but pizza dough, I make the dough. I know Tony, I basically know how he wants dough now. The only time we have fights, and they're not real fights about dough, frustrations about dough is when the humidity changes. Because I make dough several days before we bake it. So when the humidity changes a lot between the date that I make the dough and the day that we roll it, it makes the dough harder to work with. So it could be drier than we want or wetter than we want. But I'm not rolling it. Uh, obviously, he is. So he has to deal with that if that's happening. Um, so, but I, I mean, I feel like we, we are getting better. I maybe it's just what happens with married people generally, but we get better at managing each other, avoiding each other, putting people between us when we're frustrated and then discussing those things in honest ways, not then. Um, cause quite honestly, I don't care what size of kale box bunch is. I mean, underlyingly don't care that much. I think it's only an issue when there's like a shortage of something, which we try not to have happen. Um, and I'm thankful that we still do half shares, even though that trend in CSAs has gone away because, or now that we call them small shares, but um, that really helps us be able to deal with things that cause the most tension. Like if there's not enough peppers the first week, we can just give them to small shares or just give them to full shares. So we have some strategies, I guess. That, is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just always, I'm always interested in how farm relationships work because it's, you know, Inc. Magazine, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they, they for several years had um, a, a columnist who was writing strictly about entrepreneurial relationships, mm -hmm. uh, both when, when one partner was an entrepreneur and the other wasn't, as well as entrepreneurs who were working together. And I think farming takes all of the things that entrepreneurs deal with and sort of raises it to another level because you basically, you add all of the financial stress, um, the, the time challenges, and then you put on top of that bugs, sweat, and mud. Yeah. And weather, you know, and and so it's I just think it's always interesting to know how how couples work that out. And especially, you know, you guys have got the kids and you've got this very diversified operation that I think would make it hard to come up with a lot of standards that say this is exactly how big a, a Stony Acres farm kale bunch is. You know, that that's yeah. that becomes a lot more difficult yeah, than an operation your side. Standardize things like I mean, we do for like the week, but we don't standardize that. I know there's some farms that have like management guides where like this is the number of peppers that go in each box. Like we don't have that. We kind of calculate and divide or have goals or yeah, we don't we don't standardize things maybe as much as some other farms do. Yeah. I just think it's, I think it's interesting to think about how, how you guys, how you guys are dealing with that. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of give yeah. us some insights into and how you do that. We're type A. So, I mean, if both of us weren't trying to control the entire farm operation ourselves all the time, it would totally change the dynamic. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Of course. I mean, that's, that I think is also a characteristic of, of 
at least market farming couples tend to be a company market farmers tend to be type a personalities and i think they they come together in that where did you guys did you guys meet and and have the intention of farming together was that was that a goal in your relationship from from day one well no i would say that's not that well who knows that's an interesting question so tony and i met in a in a class so i was in graduate school in madison and um he was finishing an undergraduate education degree, and we met in a class called Class State and Ideology, so pretty sexy name, um, <laughs> where there's lots of married couples that came out of the class, so apparently people on the far left like each other, and that's what we said. Um, but we, yeah, we met in this class, um, and, well, Tony can, Tony's version of this is much cuter and much more romantic, but I, like, pursued him, because he's awkward around women, and then uh, he... <laughs> Finally, it was like, oh, you like me. And then we dated <laughs> um, for a while. While we were in Madison, he finished his teaching degree. And then after we've been dating for about a year, we, this may be a little bit more than a year, a year and a half, we, I don't know, went out to a restaurant in Madison, the Italian Working Men's Club. We had a discussion about uh, like our dreams. We, at that point, I was working part-time at Vermont Valley. And I, you know, I was studying the sociology of agriculture. So I was like, you know, getting a graduate degree and disliking Monsanto. And then, uh, and Tony's a farm boy who romanticizes and loves his family farm. And so I think we had a discussion about like, what if we had a farm? We ended up probably having too much beer and staying out, um, talking about this. And then in the course of this conversation, we decided to get married. Um, so <laughs> because, because beer practical. is the right time to make a choice about that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good, I think we were moving in that direction anyway, but I think we made a decision about that at the same time as we were like, what is our farm going to look like? And then we had that, you know, that time that I feel like farmers should all celebrate if you are in like a simultaneous relationship development and farm development stage, which is where you get to, you know, obsessively draw maps and think about what your life is going to be like. And, you know, it's a really like exciting and beautiful and fun time. Um and so I, you know, we, we had that time. And then I think that was the summer of 2005. We went and told Tony's parents we wanted to move back to the farm when I was done with my qualifying exams for my PhD that I didn't finish. Uh, and then we were going to move back and buy 80 acres of land or whatever that was. And, uh, and Tony's parents kind of were like, give us a business plan. And we told them all that we were going to do a CSA and they were totally weirded out by the whole situation. They were like, no one is going to give you money in advance. That's crazy sounding. Um, but they were really supportive. So they were like, well, you both of you will get jobs. At that point, Tony had been teaching for two years outside of Madison. So they were like, well, you know, at least it's a nice place you can raise your family, even if you don't have a farm. <laughs> um, it's successful. <laughs> so we moved back. Um, well, we keep spring of 2006. And then that was our first market season. We had our wedding that summer. And then we, what happened next? We had our CSA in 2007. And so, you know, that was, it was a pretty nice, easy transition. But I think simultaneously our romantic idea of the farm and our relationship developed together. So we didn't necessarily intend on doing that. I think we could have ended up in an urban area as well doing really different work. But that's not what happened. <laughs> I, I like that though. That's a, that's a, that's a really cute story. Kat. It's pretty so, cute. And do you know, I don't know if you know, Rachel Armstrong, she's farm commons. The yes. Firm. I know Rachel. Okay. So she was our, she was not only my student when I, she took this class that I 
taught is probably not great because it was the first time I'd ever taught. Um, and then she was my waitress the night we decided to get married. And then we were one of her case studies for her law firm. So, um, okay, one of that's my favorite just organic much. community stories that <laughs> Rachel was waitressing for us that night. It's a small world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The organic community is huge. <laughs> that's what I've learned. Our whole life revolves around Rachel. <laughs> Now, I mean, so do you still find that to be the case that your whole life revolves around Rachel Armstrong? No, I don't, I don't actually. It's kind of moved on it. from there. It's moved okay. on. I still love Rachel Armstrong and what she's doing. Um, she's, so, she's, yeah. I think she's doing some really interesting work. And I she know is. that I've used, I've used some of her resources in helping out my clients. It's been, it's been extremely valuable. I love so. them. All I needed was like a real legal agreement for a worker share. <laughs> did great. you, did you end up with one? I, well, she, I took one from her. I mean, she has like formed okay. ones. She helped us yeah. with a lot of stuff like becoming an LLC and convincing Tony of many things that he doesn't want to do with paperwork. So it was good. <laughs> Great. Kat, on that note, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be back to the show in just a moment. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises, a promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots on an ongoing basis. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 10-20 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont Compost Potting Soils provide just that consistently year after year. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell got its start because the founder, John Johnson, didn't feel like his chemically fertilized roses were meeting his expectations for fragrance and endurance. Johnson found that by mixing organic vegetable, animal, and mineral compounds, the roses soon obtained maximum performance. When rose growers get behind something, you know it's effective. Since that time, Fertrell has built a reputation for quality and service that's second to none. Each product is built upon years of experience and has been time-tested for maximum results. All of their blends are produced in-house, and the organic fertilizers have been formulated to meet organic standards with a full-season release of vital macro and micronutrients. With experience with all types of producers, from backyard hobbyists to full-scale production facilities, Fertrell has the knowledge and products to help you get the most out of your crops, whether you raise crops and livestock organically, conventionally, or somewhere in between. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. And now back to our interview with Kat Becker. And so then when you guys moved to to Athens, Wisconsin, it's my understanding that you spent some time teaching and not being full-time on the farm. Is that right? Um, I would say that I was full-time on the farm when I was also teaching. Um, but yeah, I did. Um, I did do that. So I taught at UW Marathon County. So I was teaching college. Um, and so I okay. specifically set up my schedule around farming. So I was, I am really, I really love teaching. I love students. Um, I loved a lot of the stuff that I did, but I really appreciate myself and the way that I act when I'm not holding two full-time jobs down. So I really like my transition away from teaching, but yeah, I taught 
for oh, seven years, almost six years, um, in, you know, basically in, in the capacity that ranged from like one class a semester to almost nearly full time. Um, and I taught sociology, kind of introductory sociology. And then I also taught a class on organic agriculture with another professor, professor of entomology um, or botany, Paul Whitaker. So I got to do that, which was really fun. Um, and yeah, I taught at a two-year college. But a lot of my work was at night. I increasingly, while I actually don't pedagogically think online teaching is the best thing, I moved to doing a lot of online teaching because it meant that I didn't have to leave and I could do work at you know other hours because the fall and the spring are really tough, um, as you might know, in farming. <laughs> so those are yeah. the best times to have two jobs. <laughs> So and then and then you just made that transition away from from ha- holding down those two jobs just recently, right? Yeah, it was this not this past spring, but the spring before. Um, and I, yeah, for a long time, we, I mean, I agonized over the question of benefits and what kind of health insurance are we going to have, and you know, economically, can we make it? And that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I've like been, I shouldn't say preaching, but I really have been like talking about a lot is the fact that I didn't realize how much energy. I know that I have boundless energy, but I thought I really had boundless energy. And I realized that right now, like just spending you know, four hours a week, maybe it's less than that, marketing stuff to restaurants and a little bit more time farming, I can easily make up my income from teaching. Um, I mean, I was getting paid horribly, so that's part of it. And then our benefits got worse and worse to a point where um, there were changes, you know, with with that being kind of less and less affordable because of less wonderful things in the state of Wisconsin. And then also um, the Affordable Care Act was a really meaningful, obviously, for farmers. So all those things kind of collided at the same time. It really is interesting what you can do when you when you make that leap from holding down two jobs to to just having that one thing that you're focusing on and how much more. I don't think it's just a time issue. I think it's also a a mental energy and emotional energy issue that when you're pouring all of that into the one enterprise or the one business instead of instead of trying to juggle it around so much, you, I think you really get, it really magnifies the effort that you are putting into the farm. So well, I would totally agree. I, I mean, I've, I've kind of expressed to people that, you know, I had a job that maybe was 20 hours a week and I'm super focused and efficient. So I could probably do a 20 hour a week job in 10 hours a week. Like I can, I can pound stuff out. I'm not flaky. I don't like play on the internet while I'm doing my work. I'm really focused, but, um, but there was all that background stuff, you know, dealing with a student that was upset and dealing with checking emails and checking in and someone didn't understand this situation. And even the background kind of worry, or at least there was something that we had, which was like, am I going to have enough classes to have health insurance kind of being the background? Um, those things were really significant for me. So I, I, I mean, I really didn't understand how much energy those things took and took away from my ability to think about other things. Yeah. And I really like, I like the fact that you said the background energy that it took, not the foreground energy, but that background, it's not the, it's not the teaching and the lesson plans and that straightforward stuff, but it's the, it's the odd emails, you know, at, at eight o'clock at night that you are in your head. Yeah. Kat, I, I happen to know because I got a, I get a copy of the directory from the Telluride Association um, that, that you came out of the Cornell branch of the Telluride Association. So you went to Cornell University. Um, the Telluride Association, I've never really understood what Telluride Association is, but I know that it's associated with Deep Springs College where I went to school for two years and where I think I got a lot of my 
uh, if I, I, I don't want to sound too full of myself, but ethic of service that I've, that I've got and that I think that I, a lot of my work expresses. And it seems like you've got a similar ethic there on the farm that you're, I mean, and, and I know, I mean, there's always the obvious stuff, right? Like you guys give workshops at the Moses conference, you host field days for the, for the, in the, in your boots project that Lisa Kiverest runs. Um, I mean, I see you guys out there and putting Stony Acres farm and putting your experiences out there for other people. But could you talk a little bit more about how that notion of service fuels your work at Stony Acres farm? Sure. So I don't know if I got, I'm sure the Telluride Association, which is like a strange, you know, private robber baron funded educational institution, um, which I thank very much for providing room and board for me during my four years of college. Um, I don't know how much that, that informed my service. I think there are people that are more into being Telluride folk um, than I am, although I'm very appreciative um, to the organization, um, but I don't have like a Telluride marriage or, you know, um, I'm, I, clearly you wouldn't have that from deep springs either. <laughs> um, well, Hey, I could now, now it's legal now. now. Have, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know. So the listening audience is, is deep springs college is actually an all male college out on the California, Nevada state line. So hence that comment about, and Chris is married to a woman, right? Are you uh, have a female? I, I, I have been in the past and I'm in a committed relationship with a woman now. So, okay. So I was yeah. just using that as my background. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know if my service, I mean, certainly there was service involved with that. And, um, um, yeah, lots of lengthy meetings and democratic governance. Um, so I don't actually know where like service, you know, where my love of service comes from, maybe other parts of my education, um, both pre and post college. Um, but I do think that it is an important thing for our farm. I think Tony and I are both heavily ideologically driven. I mean, that's, I think something lots of people know about us. We don't hide People often talk to us about like the politics of organic. You know, we don't hide our politics, um, individual politics, which are very much about kind of equality and um, having, you know, people having access to good food and access to public infrastructure and healthcare and things like that. And so we, I don't think we hide that from anyone. Um, and I, and I think that it's pretty much a core to, you know, the reason that we love each other and how we set up our farm. So I think that, that that's there. Um, I don't know where it comes from, but certainly I think that we do really value that. You know, we had actually said no to my first school group this week because we had two other groups coming out and I just can't handle another two hour diversion this specific week from farming. But we generally, you know, allow schools to come here free of charge. We love to talk to them about what we're doing. We talk in college classes and high school classes and, you know, workshops. Um, and lots of it is uncompensated, which I'm fine with, especially if it's educational. Um, and so we feel like that's important to give back. And I think both of us, you know, volunteer and serve on, you know, boards of many things because we feel like it's important for people to participate democratically. And so I feel like we've done, you know, stuff with the Wisconsin Farmers Union and, um, I'm on the board of Mosa and, you know, there's Tony's on the president or the co-president of the Wassa farmer's market. I think we do a lot of that work because we feel like, well, one, nobody else wants to do it, but two, um, it's, I think it's important for, you know, civil society to run. And I think both of us believe that our visions for the world are positive, And so we want to share those things. So we're going to turn now cat to the, to the lightning round 
okay, uh, as ready. we as we start to wrap up the the interview here. So, um, the first question I'm going to ask you in the lightning round here is, what is your favorite tool on the farm? Um, so my favorite tool on the farm, we made like, a, I'm going to just tell you that we made a lot of inappropriate jokes in preparation for this question, but I'm not going to tell you them. Um, <laughs> this is a family friendly podcast. Their, yes. I'll let people use their imagination, um, for my inappropriate jokes. I actually think in consultation with, um, everyone else that works here, that my favorite tool is a scuffle hoe, which is kind of a lame answer. Um, <laughs> but it is my favorite tool. I feel like I'm like constant, I'm like a scuffle hoe supporter. Even though we've like really moved to better mechanized cultivation this year in a way that makes me incredibly happy, I still love the scuffle hoe. Um, so I, I would say that that is my favorite, my favorite farm tool. But there's so many tools that I love and appreciate. When you say a scuffle hoe, you're talking about one of these. I, I call it a stirrup hoe. It's a got the hoe. same thing. Yep. It's yep. It's got the it's got the uprights on either side of kind of a curved blade. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so, and then it rocks back and forth at the end of the handle. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what it is that you really appreciate about the scuffle hoe. Um, I like, well, you know, the scuffle hoe that we have that I like the most, well, there's, a, there's actually a few. So this is why I like this tool. I'm like, oh, well, I can't decide which one I like the best. Um, I feel like it's versatile. It, really reduces labor. It's comfortable to use, at least for me. It's a really comfortable tool that I can use for long periods of time without feeling bad or straining myself in any way. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's used in many different ways. You know, we cultivate our sweet corn, but I should say we are not the best at weed control. I feel like we're still struggling with that. And so scuffle hoeing in between corn is really fast and efficient. Um, and I feel like I can get a lot of work done. Um, so that's maybe one of the reasons I like the fact that my tools are self-sharpening. I mean, I guess we have sharpened scuffle hose before, but the ones that I love the most are self-sharpening, which is true of like no other tools. Like the more you, I mean, there, there are tools like plows that are like that, but often <laughs> that's not true of right. tools. So I really like, uh, like that feature. Um, so I guess those are the reasons I love a scuffle hoe. I also think a scuffle hoe is like, it fits with every scale of our farm. At least. So, you know, we clearly aren't doing 80 acres of vegetables, but even on farms with 80 acres of vegetables, they use a scuffle hoe. So, you know, yeah. I think it, it, it fits into many different production systems in many different ways. It's really easy. It's super easy to train someone how to use. Um, so I think that that's another thing that I really like about it. Like, I feel like I can give someone a hoe and it's pretty natural the way that you would use it. So that's another reason I like scuffle hose. <laughs> so Kat, what's the most challenging crop that you continue to grow? The most challenging crop that we continue to grow. That's an interesting, well, I like to continue to grow because it assumes that I stop growing things when they're hard to grow, which I don't do. Um, yeah, you're no, a vegetable farmer. Yeah, so you probably don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I actually believe that we can grow every crop well. I believe that because I would actually give up on crops if if I didn't believe that, but, um, but I'd say, and now of course this is, this year is like an outlier. Um, we are not good at growing potatoes, although our potatoes look awesome this year. Cause I think we're like doing things that we should do to take care of them properly. Um, but I feel like we actually struggle to be good potato growers. We have really heavy soil. We finally have an appropriate potato hiller, which seems to be making all the difference in our whole life rather than like a thrown together, not real potato hiller. Um, but potatoes have been hard for us. Tell me about what a real potato hiller looks like compared to a not, I mean, you're, you guys are kind of in potato country up there. Well, we're, we're, so it seems like from a map that we're in potato country, 
But people, there's two, there are two potato areas that run right up against us. So there's the Anago potato farmers that basically grow potatoes in silt. You know, the Anago silt loam is a state soil. And then there's yep. the sand growers, you know, they're in the central sands that grow potatoes. And they do that by just like pouring on fertility, basically. I'm, I mean, I feel all of our friends that are organic growers, there, I always feel bad for them because I feel like they're just trying to get 3% organic matter. And that's like the naturally occurring organic matter in our soil. Right. Um, we have really heavy soil. So in wet years, potatoes don't love standing water, it turns out. Um, so in wet years, you know, we have struggled with potatoes. We've tried growing potatoes under mulch, which isn't good in a wet year. We've tried growing potatoes in kind of raised beds um, that generally works. But then when you weed them, you like get greening because you can't get them covered up. So a real potato hiller, I mean, basically has plowshares and discs. We had this kind of funny little plowshare three bottom thing that we could use to make hills, but it doesn't hill very well. It's much less aggressive. Um, so we really like our new aggressive potato hiller. It's, it's a little scarier to use, um, but it turns out our potatoes really like apparently being hit hard with an aggressive potato hiller. So that's been a good lesson for us. Um, so we feel like we're getting that down. The other thing, although this year also an outlier, is broccoli. Um, that is hard for us to grow kind of consistently well. And I think and Brussels sprouts, I'm being told Brussels sprouts are in the background. Brussels sprouts are just hard because Brussels sprouts are like, even the hybrid Brussels sprouts are like 90 days and I don't even believe them. They're like 120 days and just, we don't really have 120 days to grow them here. Right. Um, so that's the big issue with Brussels sprouts. Well, it's such a shame with Brussels sprouts too, because they're, they only get good at the end of the season. So, you know, it's not like, and the places that they grow Brussels sprouts and grow them really well, they taste like crap. Um, yeah, the only exactly. place they really taste good is when you're in the North and get a good hard frost on them. I agree so, with you. <laughs> kind of a challenge with that. Some, somebody needs to do some work on short season Brussels sprouts. Short season Brussels sprouts. I should talk to Madison. They're doing a lot of other fun uh, vegetable trials right now. Maybe that's the next crop of interest. <laughs> yeah, that's well. They just got the they just got a chair of organic plant breeding, so maybe I you should be meeting on them about that. I'm excited. All right, so Kat, if you could go back in in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think I would. You know, I think I covered this a little bit, but I would tell myself uh, to quit my off farm job sooner, <laughs> even though I loved it. Um, and felt like there were really important, valuable parts about it. I think all the things I had apprehensions about, like not being able to teach, um, are things that I've been able to create for myself in other ways. And I also feel like it's way better for me in terms of like my mental health and my physical health and my relationships with my family and friends. So, I mean, on every level, I think I should have done that a little bit earlier than I did it, maybe two years or three years earlier. What do you think would have been the appropriate sign that it was time to leave your, your off farm job? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think you, you know, I, I, I think some of the times that I like wasn't able to handle like the balancing act very well and felt, you know, incredibly stressed, argued about basically nothing. Um, felt like I wanted to escape from my family cause I needed personal space. I think some of those things I kind of, took as like, this is the way it is versus 
I, you know, it wasn't really necessarily the way that it had to be. Um, so I think that that probably would have been a sign. I also, I mean, I think the healthcare thing, at least for us, like, Wendy, Tony is not afraid of not having healthcare. But for me, that was something that I was afraid of, (laughs) um, just with small children. And I think that I, you know, we didn't really have, well, we still don't have expanded Medicaid in Wisconsin, but um, I think if I had had a better sense of how easy it would be for a poorer farmer than I am now to get on Badger Care, um, I would have done that. I didn't realize that we could have basically for a couple of years gotten access to public health care. Um, and so the lack of health care was something that kind of kept me afraid and kept me working maybe when I didn't want to. If you had maybe if you had known more about the options that were actually available to you, you might have made some different yeah. choices. And it's yeah. totally significantly different now. I mean, I do think there have been incredible changes in healthcare. So I think that for some of us, that's been really important and good. Kat, thank you so much for making time in the middle of in the middle of this June afternoon to to share with the Farm to Farmer podcast. I really do appreciate it. Well, I got good weeding done and I got an interesting conversation. So thank you. I love it. I don't, I don't think we've actually had anybody uh, doing physical farm work while they were doing the interview at the same time. So I think that's kind of a, that's a new thing for the, for the show here. I feel like for me, it's a good, it's a good multitasking. Also, I could escape from my children, you know, the closer I am to the house, including the patch shed, the easier it is for them to find. (laughs) All right. Well, tell your family thank you also for for letting you make the time and being away from the kids oh, yeah. and everything. So that's fine. Um, yeah. Thanks a lot. Have a good right. afternoon. All right. Thank you, Kat. Yep. Take care. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 22 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Becker. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. I would like to thank everyone for their support of this podcast. We went over 25,000 total downloads for the show this week, which feels like a pretty big number to me. Thank you so much for the great reviews on iTunes, for the supportive comments on the website, and for sharing the show with your friends and neighbors. It really makes a difference to me to know that this show is making a difference. I would also like to give a special shout out to my partner in crime and love of my life, Angie Sullivan. This wouldn't have happened without her loving support and her enthusiasm and her encouragement to take this idea and make it fly. Baby, thank you so much. Thank you also to Christy Waits of Second Cup Media, who is responsible for all of the web design and the ongoing work of getting the pieces of FarmerToFarmer.com, PurplePitchfork.com, and the Flying Rutabaga newsletter updated and online every single week. And one more thing, if you hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Thank you again, everybody. Keep weathering the weather and keep the tractor running. 